But I just want to lead us in a moment of prayer for those that are enduring, for those that are going through some stuff here this morning. So once again, if you're going through a struggle, keep your hand raised, and we want to pray. So Father, we, we thank you that you are the one true God, that you are the holy and righteous one. You are the all-powerful one. You are the magnificent one. And you are able to accomplish your plans according to your riches and your glory. And I pray that no matter what these people are enduring and going through in this moment, I pray that they would be caught up in your presence. They would be caught up in your glory. They would be caught up into the throne room of heaven. And they would understand there is an all-holy, powerful, sovereign God who ultimately is in control of all things. And you are true to your word. You are true to your word. You will accomplish your purpose and your plans. And help us to rest. Help us to trust in the goodness of who you are. You are, in fact, making all things new. And so give them strength to endure. Give them strength to persevere. Give them strength to remain steadfast in the midst of whatever they are going through. That one day they may stand before your throne and hear those words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you for not giving up. Thank you for not throwing in the towel. Thank you for remaining faithful. Come and enjoy this heavenly reward. So God, we thank you. We praise you. We honor you this morning. And it's in Jesus' mighty and incredible name. Amen, amen, and amen. Wow, what a sweet presence. What a sweet presence. And I want to come at the end to sing that song, Is He Worthy Again? I just love the call and response and the dynamic of that song. And I know for some of you, maybe it's a new song and it's a little different, but I think there's so much power and beauty in that song. And I want us to close by singing that song once again. Well, welcome, GT family. So good to be in the house of God worshiping. If you're joining us online, so good to have you joining with us as well. And my name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Glad Tidings. And we are just excited about what the Lord is doing in our Midst. We are truly believing that the greatest days for GT are yet ahead of us. Amen. And so God is up to some great things. We say this a lot. God is in a good mood. And that's important for some of us to know. <laughs> God is in a good mood. And he is doing some incredible things. And so we are really excited just to be able to gather in this format, in this way. Well, if you are new, we are in week three of a series in the book of Colossians titled The True Desire of Your Heart. Just going through this book that Paul wrote to this church at Colossae to encourage them to build them up in their faith and really looking at the idea of what's called the supremacy of Christ. And all that means is simply this, that Jesus is ultimately better, that Jesus is ultimately wiser, that Jesus is truer, and that Jesus is more fulfilling than anything that this world ever could try to offer us. That there is a supremacy to Christ. He is the ultimate one. He is the supreme one. He is the one we place our hope and trust in. Now, if you were here last week, we talked about this idea of what's called orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And this is a consistent motif or a consistent theme all throughout this epistle that Paul lays out this principle that if we believe rightly about God, if we have right doctrine, then it must lead to proper orthopraxy, right practice. And they work in a cyclical way one with another. That right doctrine leads to right practice and right practice leads us back to right 
doctrine. It's not just good enough to say we are Christian and just say it out of a nominal type of faith. But if we profess that Jesus is in fact Lord of our lives, it looks like something. It sounds like something. It's something that is tangible that people should identify about our lives. They're not just Christian in name, but they're also Christian in deed and in practice. Now, over the next several weeks, I want to kind of, kind of center some thoughts or build some thoughts around this statement that I'm about to make here, and it's going to be consistent in this week and also in next week. And the statement, it comes from some ideas that the great Augustine kind of talked about in this idea of formation and love. And the statement simply says this, you become that which you behold. You behold that which you worship. You worship that which you love. You love that which you become consumed by, and you become consumed by that which you dwell upon. And so this morning, if you remember nothing else from my message here today, take a picture of that, take a snapshot. That is something that we can live our lives by. You become that which you behold. You behold that which you worship. You worship that which you love. That we are love beings more than we are intellectual beings. You love that which you become consumed by. And you become consumed by that which you dwell upon. Well, all across this place this morning, let's stand for the reading of God's word in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. And Paul says this, Therefore, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You may be seated this morning. I want to ask you this question here today. What does it mean to be free? Because I think this is the big idea that Paul is really getting at in this passage of Scripture. What does it mean to experience true freedom? You see, whether it is legalism or lawlessness, the truth is that we all have our ideas of what it means to be free. Or rather put, we all have our ideas of what we need to do in order to experience freedom. 
For many in today's modern society, the idea of freedom is often connected to this pseudo-anarchist type of thinking, this anarchist type of ideals where there's no order, there's no boundaries, there's no law, and we are given permission, we are granted permission to express ourselves however our soul desire feels. You do you, I'll do me, we'll just all express ourselves in whatever way, shape, or form we feel or we desire. This is connected to an idea of hedonism, which always leads to a realm of lawlessness. For others, we may be obsessed with order. For many of us, we may be obsessed with structure and certainty. I would propose that certainty is one of the greatest core values in Canada. In America, the greatest core value is independence and freedom. They will die on that mountain. In Canada, our core values are safety and certainty. These aren't necessarily bad things, they're good things, but often good things become idols in our lives. We all love to have certainty of what's to come. We all love to be in the know of what to expect. None of us like to step out into the realm of faith that we don't know the outcome of because we all love to have ultimate control. How many people love certainty? Right? Yeah, that's what I thought. The majority of us here today, we all love certainty. And so what's interesting is that for most of us, we actually compartmentalize both these ideas to certain components of our lives as we see best fit for our own purpose and gain. In many areas of our lives, we function very liberally. In other areas, we become quickly dogmatic legalists. And what's really interesting is how we then want to force upon others the same passion that we may feel, whether it's in legalism or whether it's in liberation. We want to force that upon others, and often this can lead to a judgmental spirit. This can lead to a self-righteous spirit. This can lead to what many sociologists call today group think, and what we're experiencing across the whole cancel culture. And the truth is, we're all guilty of it. Every one of us in this place, including me, are guilty of this. There are things that I am passionate about, and there are things that I'm very liberal in. And there are things I am convicted about, and there are other things I'm not as convicted about. And the truth is, we desire that every single person in the world think and act the same way that we think and act. But I want you to do this practice here this morning. I know I've done it before, but it's so powerful and so liberating. I want you to turn to your neighbor. Turn to your neighbor. Look them right in the eyes. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's someone next to you. And say this. I'm not you. And you're not me. And that's okay. That is the greatest premarital advice, Kenwin, Elijah. That is the greatest premarital advice I could ever give someone. I'm not, Caleb, Lauren, the greatest premarital advice you will ever hear. I'm not you, you're not me, and that's okay. We're all different. We're all unique. But the beauty is that we are all created in the image of God. Now what the Apostle Paul seems to be speaking towards in this passage is that for those who are in Christ, a phrase that he uses over and over again, 
they are not to be those who swing from one extreme side of the pendulum to the other. But rather, they are to be those who embrace the tension of being led by the Spirit so that we may walk in the way of love, which is ultimately the way of Jesus. When he says, let no one pass judgment or let no one disqualify you, both these statements in their context speak of the idea of guarding against other people's passions and dogmas or concerns being forced upon you over and above the concern of the gospel. The concern of the good news of what Jesus has done and ultimately what Jesus calls us to. And that simply being this, living and abiding an authentic relationship with him. When Paul says that these things, these elemental things are a shadow of the things to come, Paul is actually contrasting the old covenant age to that of the new covenant age. You see, the New Testament writers understood that the old covenant practices, the law and the feasts and the sacrificial system and all these things were simply meant to point towards or foreshadow what was going to be established in the new covenant. That the old covenant age and the law and the sacrificial systems was never meant to save anyone. It is not holy in and of itself, but it was always meant to point towards how every one of us are in need of a Savior. Every one of us are in need of a Redeemer. And every one of us need to encounter Jesus, the Christ, in a beautiful way. The old covenant age could not save. It only pointed towards that need of, in fact, a Savior. In fact, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20 in the Sermon on the Mount, he alludes to this idea. He says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but rather to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, verse 20, interesting passage of scripture, he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes or the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's interesting to note, many scholars believe that that statement, heaven and earth passing away, is not talking about the literal heaven and the literal earth, but it's a reference to the temple. Because in Second Temple Judaism, the temple was the place where heaven and earth were one. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the garden is the place where heaven and earth are one. That's why it's full of all kinds of temple language. In Revelation 21 and 22, it's the idea of the temple of God coming to earth. And once again, heaven and earth becoming one. And the temple, the second temple in this first century context, was the place where they went to perform the sacrificial systems. And Jesus ultimately says, that practice is good, but it's not what saves. That practice is given to you so that you might understand you are in desperate need of a savior. And Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but he does say what? I came to fulfill it. Because the truth is, the law was given to point us of our brokenness 
and sin or point us towards our brokenness and sin, you and I could never fulfill the law. Therefore, you and I could never fulfill the old covenant. But Jesus came and he fulfilled it. And in his fulfilling of it, he has established a new and eternal covenant. Now the immediate context of these verses are what Jesus teaches concerning the old covenant law in which Jesus makes very clear that he actually does supersede the law of the Old Testament. And that the law was left incomplete and ultimately pointed towards his fulfillment. In fact, he uses the phrase, you have heard it said, but I tell you six times in this passage. You have heard it said that you shall not murder, but I tell you, if you have anger in your heart, you've already committed the act. You have heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you have lust in your heart, you've already committed the act. Now we must also see that the Sermon on the Mount is not a hyper form of legalism making it more difficult for us to somehow measure up. Well, I'm glad that I could check the box of not murdering, but if I'm honest, I have anger in my heart, therefore I'm a failure. No, Jesus is not giving us a hyper form of legalism, but in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing is that he's revealing that God, and I say this all the time, is relentless in his pursuit of our hearts. He's not just concerned with you not committing an act or committing an act. He's after the condition of your very heart. He's not just concerned with the elemental things of do not taste, do not touch, do not absorb these things. He's after the condition of what's happening in the inner person of who you are. The old covenant revealed and exposed the condition of how broken and messed up and jacked up we all are. But the new covenant that Jesus has established says you don't have to be messed up, broken, and jacked up anymore. Because when you allow him to come into your life, the new covenant says you can be renewed. You can be transformed. You can be made whole. You can become a new creation. You can be a new person in Christ Jesus. When we learn to abide in Christ, to be in Christ, to dwell upon Christ, to love Christ, to worship Christ, this is actually what brings transformation to our hearts and our lives. And when we begin to experience the fullness of the new covenant, we're not ever going to have to worry about the law. Because if my heart is renewed, and the anger in my heart is dealt with, and the lust in my heart is dealt with, and the envy in my heart is dealt with, I'm not going to have to worry about lashing out or manifesting against the law. Is this making sense? In fact, Hebrews 8 speaks about this new covenant. In verses 6 through 13, the writer says this, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is what? Better. Since it is enacted on better promises. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. 
For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I love this. I will put my law into their minds and write them, where? On their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all, they shall all know me. That's a powerful line there. They shall all, all those who put their faith hope, and trust in Jesus as Lord. They shall all know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish. And so what Paul speaks about and what the writer of Hebrews speaks about is this idea is that when you allow, in their context, the Judaizers to come in and try to give you all the rules, all the do's and don'ts, all the regulations of what it means to live holy and check the box or uncheck the box, you are functioning under an old covenant paradigm and you think that you can receive salvation through it. But it was never meant for that purpose and intent. But when you put faith, hope, and trust in Jesus as Lord, you now become inheritors of this new covenant. And he is the one who has kept the covenant perfectly. And when you put your faith in him, his spirit comes and lives and dwells inside of you. And it, bring, it begins to transform you. It begins to heal you. It begins to convict you. It begins to do that radical work of salvation in your inner person. This is why, beloved, the new covenant is such a better covenant. Because it's doing something on the inner person of who we are. And that's actually what God has always been after. The other reason that the new covenant is better is because the new covenant is not between God the Father and us. And that's good news. Because God is faithful to keep covenant. But the Old Testament story of Israel reveals we're not good at keeping covenant. It exposes us that we are covenant breakers. And so the new covenant, and stay with me, I know I'm doing a lot of teaching here this morning, but it will wrap up in a moment here. The new covenant is between God the Father and God the Son. And Jesus represented mankind to the Father in this covenant. And this is why Paul always says, for those who are in Christ. You receive this covenant by grace. You receive this covenant by inheritance. Colossians 3 he goes on, verses 1 through 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
Paul is using all this new covenantal language to say, listen, understand your identity. When your faith is in him, his spirit is in you. And if a spirit is truly in you, it looks like something. It sounds like something. It's tangible. And you are being transformed more and more into the image of Jesus. And so the charge for believers in the new covenant is simply this. Fall more in love with Jesus. What Paul does in Colossians 2, he says, listen, these elemental things of don't touch, don't taste, that's not what it's about. What it's about is falling more and more in love with Jesus, the Christ, who kept the covenant perfectly and made a way for you to be in him so that you can be in rightful relationship with your creator. And so the way we enter into this covenant is by grace, but it's by falling more and more in love with Jesus. How do I stop sinning? Fall more in love with Jesus. How do I walk in the purposes of God? Fall more in love with Jesus. There's something beautiful that happens when we're in love. Because we are love creatures. We are love beings because our love is connected to our worship. James K.A. Smith says this, to be human is to have a heart. You can't not love. What a powerful statement. You can't not love. So the question isn't whether you will love something as ultimate. The question is what you will love as ultimate. And you are what you love. You want to be more transformed into the image of Jesus. Fall more in love with Jesus. I want to let you in on a secret here this morning. I'm going to have a moment of confession, but I'm going to do it just for the online community. I don't want anyone else here to hear this, all right? So online community, are are you engaged right now? Are you here? Are you present? Put a thumbs up or just something. Praise the Lord in the comments, all right? I don't want anyone here hearing this, all right? I'm going to let you in on a secret of Pastor Tim right now. I don't like Christmas decorations. And my wife loves Christmas decorations. Don't tell anyone here. Just keep it between us. I I, I can't, I can't stand. And Christmas decorations. The gaudiness of them. The clutter. And my wife has bins and bins of Christmas decorations. I love Christmas and the arrival of Jesus and celebrate, but the Christmas decorations, I, I can't. Now we will have Christmas decorations in December, don't worry, all right? Here, I can't stand them. And, and every year after Halloween, my wife, she's ready to decorate our living room for Christmas. And this became a point of contention in our marriage early on. Like we, we, we had a lot of friction over this. And I would say, honey, not till after the American Thanksgiving. And we would finally come to that agreement and we would decorate and she would have all her clutter and all her gaudy, like Christmas threw up in our living room kind of thing. And... <laughs> But the second Christmas is over, I gave her two days. We're tearing it down. Put it back in the bins and get it back in storage. But here's the deal. I love my wife. I deeply 
love my wife. And because I deeply love my wife, I've learned that I'm going to participate and be a part of decorating for Christmas. Because this is the power of love. This is the power of what love does for us. When we fall in love, we do things we don't necessarily want to do. And when we fall in love, we don't do things that we want to do. And this is what the new covenant is really all about. And the way love is manifested is through humility and sacrifice. And sacrifice is us giving of ourselves for the sake of the other. Now we sung a song here, and I close with this, so worship team, if you want to come up. We sung a song here this morning, Is He Worthy? That is taken directly from Revelation chapter 5. And in Revelation chapter 5, those that were a part of the class, you will remember this. John is caught up into heaven, and he's having all these visions. And it's crazy because he's going between heaven and earth, heaven and earth. He's seeing all this stuff, and he's just kind of writing down as, as he sees it. And he sees a scroll with seven seals on it. Now, scrolls were always significant of decrees, and decrees were connected to purposes and plans. And seven was a number that was always used for the idea of completeness, wholeness, perfection. So all through Revelation, and, the num and when you see numbers, it's not necessarily about, I would propose, it's not about literal numbers. It's about symbolic imagery being used. And so seven seals are on this scroll that signify decrees and purposes. It speaks of the perfect plan for God in the earth. That God desires to make his decree for the scroll to be open so that he can accomplish his perfect will and plan for the earth. But John recognizes the problem. He says, who is worthy to open the scroll? John understands, I'm not worthy. Quentin, are you worthy? No, Alex, are you worthy? No, we're, we're not worthy. Who is worthy? Who is there in heaven and on earth who is worthy to open the scroll? And the angel comes and says, I'll tell you who's worthy. The lion of the tribe of Judah. And that imagery of a lion speaks of being all-powerful, having all authority. And of course, John goes, of course, the one with all power and authority, the Son of God from the tribe of Judah, he is worthy. The lion of the tribe of Judah, all power. And then when he's revealed, he's the lamb. Come on. Who is worthy? To open the scroll so that God's purposes and decrees may be accomplished in the earth. The lion who is the lamb. And the lamb always spoke of humility and sacrifice. 
How are God's purposes coming to the earth? Humility and sacrifice. How is the new covenant being unfolded in the earth? The Lamb who modeled for us humility and sacrifice. How are we going to see his kingdom rule and reign come? By arguing? By fighting over the elemental things of the world, whether you do or don't? No. Through great humility and sacrifice. This is the way of Jesus. This is the way of his kingdom. It's come and it always comes through great humility and sacrifice. And that is the way of love. So I would propose to us, GT, how are we going to see God's kingdom and God's will be done in this region? First, we fall more and more in love with Jesus so that he transformed our beings, that we become true inheritors of the new covenant, where we do things we didn't necessarily want to do and we don't do things that we wanted to. And then we live that out and we walk in humility and sacrifice the way of the Lamb. So I want us to stand to our feet here this morning. And we're going to end this by singing this song. And I want us to, in this moment, have a time of call and response. And even in the weirdness of the style and structure of the psalm, I I want us to engage with what is being revealed here. Amen? Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Let's sing it out together. Do you feel the world's broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. Do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. Is all creation growing? Is a new creation coming? Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? Is anyone worthy? Is anyone holy?